Pardon me, feels like this morning. The first thing that I need to say is welcome back. Uh, it's good to be with you back in this space this morning. I think in so many ways how appropriate it is that we got to celebrate last weekend all together, all of First Church over at the Community Arts Center, and doing that in the midst of our Vision Sermon series. I say that because I think last week <clears throat> in gathering together, <clears throat> excuse me, I think we got a glimpse of the power that happens when God's people come together in unity. And when we gather together in unity and we gather together with a sense of passion and we gather together with a sense of vision, we then in the midst of that feel life and vibrancy and ultimately experience transformation together, both inwardly in our own hearts, but also outwardly as we start to live out our faith in our city and in our world. And for me especially, it was just wonderful to stand in front of all of you and kind of look across the sea of faces and see everybody who had gathered there. And as I saw you all, it was deeply moving for me in my own heart. Just that stirring of seeing God's people and thinking, coming together, what could God do with this gathered group of people together, moving us in the same direction? And it's really in that spirit that I want to ask us to pick up again today, talking specifically about our vision and keeping an idea this in mind, this idea of seeing and moving together. You might recall that a couple of weeks ago, we started to take a more careful look at our vision from a biblical perspective, and specifically using the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, as our guide. And you might remember that if you were here a few weeks ago, we started to really unpack what did it mean to actually see Jesus for who he is, and to see Jesus and understand his impact upon our life. And today we're going to finish unpacking John chapter 1. And as we start to see Jesus, and I mean really see Jesus, not just kind of think about Jesus or talk about Jesus, but see Jesus for who he is, we realize that when we see Christ for who he is, it always moves us. It never leaves us the same. It somehow changes us. And when that change happens, transformation occurs. And the way that we describe that seeing and that moving here at First Church is we say transformation in Christ, changing lives inside and out. Because this is a God that we serve who always moves us from old to new, from death to life, and from darkness into light. And that's our hope here in this place, that just at a very simple but very powerful level, that those things are always happening. And if you were here also a couple weeks ago, you'll remember they're not just eight words we want people to memorize. We want this idea of transformation and the movement of God's spirit and moving us from death to life and darkness into light. We want that to be our lifeblood not only for ourselves, but all that we have the opportunity to interact with. I cannot describe it any better than what's given to us in Scripture. We heard it two places here this morning already. From 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, we hear this. Now the, Spirit, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I don't know of anybody that doesn't in their hearts crave a sense of freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Or as Matthew 4.16 puts it, the people living in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Many of us know darkness can be an awful thing. I meet a lot of people who much prefer summer to the winter because the summer has much longer days. There's much more light in the summer. I meet a lot of folks who winter is not their favorite time because of the darkness that comes with it. 
We know that darkness leaves us groping and searching and confused and disoriented and lost. I've shared with some of you that when I was a teenager growing up on my dad's farms, there were some chores I didn't mind too much. There were some chores I couldn't stand. One of the chores that most of the time I actually kind of liked was milking the cows. I didn't mind that. I liked the animals. I liked being with them. But when it came to milking the cows, you milk cows twice a day. So you can do the math. In a normal day, there's 24 hours. We would have to milk the cows roughly 12 hours apart. Okay, no big deal. But what that meant was if you milked at, say, 3 p.m., the other time of day that you'd be doing the milking would be 3 a.m. And it's not real bright or not real light out at 3 a.m. And one of the things that I would have to do is I'd have to be sent out into the pasture by my dad and herd the cows in at 3 a.m. so that we could milk them. Now, when I was out there, the pasture that I usually had to get the cattle from, it was also right beside some woods and some trees and a forest. Do you know what it's like to be out in pretty much pitch black at 3 a.m., walking by yourself and hearing these weird, odd, and I would say scary sounds coming from the woods right beside you. I was absolutely convinced that at any moment an axe murderer or the boogeyman was going to jump out and grab a hold of me and do something awful to me. It was especially bad around Halloween to be out there walking and thinking what might be in those dark, scary woods where I couldn't see anything. The darkness was horrible. Now, as somebody said to me earlier this morning after one of our other services, Matt, why didn't you just carry a flashlight? All right? I mean, yeah, I get that. But half the time the flashlight didn't work or it would work and then the batteries would run out. It would take us forever to get new batteries. So it seemed like more often than not, I was out there in the pitch black to bring these cattle in. I did not like the darkness. I craved some light. Essentially, that's what John the Baptist is doing for us here this morning in the Gospel of John chapter 1. He wants us to see the light, the one true light of Jesus Christ, the only one who can truly deliver us from darkness into light. And I want to invite us to look carefully at John 1 this morning. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphone, I'm going to invite you to break them out. Go to the Gospel of John. That's in the New Testament, fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Go to chapter 1 and specifically verses 38 and verses 30 and verse 39. And it says this. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and he asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. I want us to catch that last phrase. It was about four in the afternoon. And before we go any farther, I want us to realize the significance and the importance of that particular phrase. Keep this in mind. The writer of John was pretty much in the same boat as you and I. There were a whole bunch of people in that day and that time who did not know who Jesus was. They didn't have any idea who Jesus Christ was, a lot like our world and culture today. Increasingly, people do not know who Jesus is. So part of what the writer is doing here is he's writing in such a way as to help people to help us see Jesus. And to do this, John the Baptist was going to share and write in such a way as to share with a sense of credibility that people would be able to see Jesus for who he really was. Because again, they didn't know who Jesus was. So he's writing in such a way that when they read this, they're going to understand and say to themselves, hey, this, this must be real what he's talking about and telling us. So how does John go about doing that? 
How can he present Jesus in a way that the people then, people who did not know Christ, would see in such a way that they would begin to be moved in their own hearts? This passage in John chapter 1 tells us. If you look throughout John chapter 1, we are told repeatedly that John testified to the light, and we're told that John saw and then told what he said. Now, you and I hear that, and we're like, what's the big deal? We hear words like testified, and he saw, and he said, and we think, well, I know what that means. It means like he testified, like in a court of law or something, right? Well, that's true. But John is saying more than I just testified to this. He's saying, what I'm telling you is real. What I'm telling you is not being made up. More literally, what John is sharing with us is he's saying to everyone, hey, everyone, I was actually there. I really saw this. I'm not making it up. It's so real that my testimony is good, even in a court of law. You can press me on this, and you're going to find out what I'm sharing, what I'm telling you. It's absolutely true. Now, why is that important? It's, it's important because what John is saying is it's not just an inward impression. It's not just a feeling that I'm sharing with you. I'm really seeing this. It's right here before me. This Jesus, he's real. It's a proof that I'm seeing this, and now I'm sharing that with you. It has all the marks of an eyewitness account. You can believe what I'm telling you. To you people who don't know, you've never seen Jesus before, you can believe what I'm sharing with you. For me, when I look at this, and this is a really fun thing, I want us to notice in the text, specifically John chapter 1, verse 39, and what is shared there. And it's what I already pointed out to you. It says, when they had spent the day with him, they said, and then it was about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, that's a big deal. Why in the world is a little detail like that a big deal? Again, you and I hear that, and we're like, all right, they met 4 in the afternoon, it's the end of the day, move on. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Years ago, there was a professor named Reynolds Price. He was an American poet, novelist, dramatist, and essayist. And it just so happens he was also the James B. Duke Professor of English at Duke University. So he's a good guy. And apart from English literature, Price had a lifetime interest in biblical scholarship. His books were often viewed on the New York Times bestselling list. One of the books that he wrote was a book called The Three Gospels, in which he looked at the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John, an original modern gospel. Now, I share this with you because in his book, Price makes this point, which applies to what we're talking about today. He says, modern writing always uses details, but ancient stories never use details. For example, ancient stories always end with something general, like, and they lived happily ever after, or maybe once upon a time, but there's nothing specific mentioned. It's very general. So in ancient writing, a writer on their own would never, ever use specific details and say something like, Oedipus went to see the Oracle of Delphi and came out at around 4 p.m. in the afternoon. You're just not going to find that in ancient stories. That's not how they wrote. But look here in the Gospel of John. It does have this type of detail, which means John wasn't making it up. He wasn't sharing a story. He's reporting what he actually saw. And then in places like John 1.43, it says very specifically, the next day. It doesn't say once upon a time they gathered with Jesus again. It says the next day they went and met with Jesus. Those would have been signals to the readers of that time that what was being shared was true. It was not being made up. It was the writer's way of saying, hey, everyone, this is an eyewitness account. It's what I'm seeing. You can believe it. I'm sharing this with you on very good authority. It's not legend. It's not myth. It has not been embellished. It's the truth. And all of this then helps the first readers and us see Jesus for who he is. 
because they can believe what's being shared with them about Jesus. So John is basically saying, I will tell you exactly what I see with Jesus. I'm going to tell you what he did so you can go in and give an account of what I'm sharing with you and you can examine the evidence and you'll find out that what I'm telling you is true. What I'm sharing with you is the light who can bring us out of the darkness. Come and see and be moved and be transformed. So because John sees this and because John offers this testimony to us, the people then and the people today can begin to see. Because John is pointing to truth and he's pointing to light out of darkness. And once the people begin to see, then they can start to move and be freed up to move in ways they never had been before. All of this starts to give us a hint then as what it means to be a Jesus follower. Part of what it means for you and I is we are called ourselves to be witnesses of Jesus. We are called to be such credible sources of the truth that when we share about Christ and when we say we see Christ and we are moved by Christ, other people can see that within us. We are ones who are called to share in the light of Christ because our lives have been transformed. Our lives have been touched so that we are moving from death into light and from darkness into light and from old into new. We are a transformed people. I wonder if that's happening for us. Are our lives so credible? Do people see Jesus within us in such a way that they are moved and they are stirred because our own testimony like John is so credible and even people who haven't seen Jesus before can start to see him. Now notice what happens with the disciples as they start to see Jesus. They move. They respond. They follow. Their life is the same and it never is. When we really see Jesus for who he is, our lives are never ever the same. Somehow we have reduced Jesus to at best a once a week gathering that I should go to called worship or some occasional devotional times to be a good moral person. And somehow in that process, we're not seeing Jesus. There's not something captivating our lives and changing who we are so that our lives are transformed and moving us to different places. But when we really see Jesus, the Christ figure, the one who loves us more than we could love ourselves, our hearts can't help but be stirred and moved to different places. Is that going on for us? Now check this out, because I think this is really good. I love this. I want to ask us to go again to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 51. And I want to ask you to hear the very last thing that Jesus says to Nathaniel. He reminds Nathaniel of a powerful, life-changing vision when he says this. Verily, verily, I say to you, Nathaniel, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, to really understand what's going on there and what Jesus is referring to, we have to do a little bit of a rewind. In fact, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament. And in fact, all the way back to the very first, first book in Scripture, Genesis. And if you want to look up the story now or a little bit later, it's Genesis chapter 28, verse 12. And what Jesus is referring to with Nathaniel in the Gospel of John is re a reference all the way back to Genesis and specifically a guy named Jacob. And Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is who God used to start his people, the people called Israel. So here's Jacob, and if you look up the story, Jacob is running for his life. He is in despair. He's in utter exhaustion, and he's about to go to sleep. And when he goes to sleep, he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a ladder. And as he's looking on the ladder, he sees angels ascending and descending. Now, it was known that angels come from the presence of God. 
So Jacob realized this must be a divine dream that I'm having. And as he realized this, he realized that what was being drawn out for him was the difference between the ideal and the real, between the way the world ought to be and the way the world was, the difference between heaven and earth. And in this dream, Jacob realizes he is in the presence of God. So it's even more than a dream. He realizes it's a divine vision, something that was impacting him and something he couldn't let go. Now, if we picture this in our own minds for just a little bit, we'll start to realize this is the kind of stuff that stretches your mind. It bends your mind and your perception of reality. Because think about this for just a moment. Here's this dream that Jacob is having. How could a ladder go all the way to heaven? How could one ladder actually reach up to and be in the presence of God? Who could create such a ladder to actually go and get an individual into the presence of God? Who could do such a thing? And as we think about that and the ladder from here all the way to heaven, we start to realize that's a pretty crazy thing. And as Jacob reflected on this, he realized, wait a minute, no one can do that. No person on their own would ever be able to reach God. And so if no person could create it, it would mean the only way that heaven and earth could be connected is if God created a way. And that started to blow Jacob's mind, so much so he built a pillar there and he called it Bethel, which means the house of God, the gate of heaven. So to keep that in mind and now come back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the end of the chapter, here's Jesus talking to Nathaniel, and here Jesus shows us and talks with Nathaniel and says, let me tell you something, Nathaniel, in this vision. I am now going to show you something beyond your wildest dreams, beyond your wildest imaginations. Nathaniel, I am the gate of heaven, just like Jacob saw so long ago. I am the gate of heaven. It's not just a dream. It's a promise, a holy vision. And I am the ladder. I am the way between heaven and earth, and I will create the way. So what does that mean? It means that this story, even way back in the Old Testament, it's really ultimately about Jesus. Even then, because at the end of the day, any vision, whether it was Jacob's or ours here at First Church, this vision, it's always about Jesus. Any vision that God gives us is always in the end about Jesus. So when we see this with Jesus, what we discover is Jesus is trying to move us. And what is Jesus moving us towards? He's moving us towards himself. He's not moving us towards one more worship service. He's not moving us to doing all these good deeds. He's moving us towards himself. And the result when we move towards Jesus himself is we want to gather with other believers to learn more about Christ. We want to be in God's word because it takes us into the life of Christ himself. It moves us and changes us and transforms us always towards Christ. Now think about this, keeping this in mind. I also want to reference this. If you again look in the Gospel of John, now go to chapter 1, verse 35. And when you look there, do you remember when we read the scripture earlier? When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, what did he call out? He said, behold, the Lamb of God. He calls him the Lamb of God. Why in the world would he call Jesus a lamb? Was it his way of looking at Jesus and saying, well, there's a meek, woolly, cute guy? No, he, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying all oh, the cute little lamb. What he's saying is, do you remember in the Old Testament? Do you remember when God's people were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh in the 10th plague? Every firstborn child was going to die except for those children covered what? In the blood of a lamb. God's people were saved through lamb's blood. So here's John the Baptist. And when he sees Jesus coming towards him, he realizes that God's wrath, God's justice, 
is about to be turned away because of this one who is walking toward him, the Lamb of God, whose blood would wash away and change our sins, our stains, our ugliness, our brokenness. Jesus is the Lamb. That story in the Old Testament, even that one, was ultimately going to point the way and show us the way to Jesus himself. The story is about Christ, his life, his death, ultimately his resurrection. So when Jesus says, I am the gateway in the cosmic realm, he's saying, every story is ultimately about me. Now think about this. Even as we gather right here and right now, think about for just a moment, what's your favorite story? Whichever one that might be. Why do we get moved by such good stories? I will tell you why we get moved by such good stories. Because on the one hand, they seem too good to be true. But on the other hand, they seem like they have to be true. There's something in those stories that speaks to the core of who we are, how we were made, how we're wired, and what we truly long for. I love this question that's asked by Pastor Tim Keller. And I'm going to, is that me? Let me, I'm going to switch that out. Sorry about that. Can I do this? Does that work? We good? Great. Thanks. I want to ask this question by Pastor Tim Keller. I think this is a beautiful question. He has this question about the story Beauty and the Beast with Disney. He says, why does that story of Beauty and the Beast, why does it move us? He says it moves us because we love the idea that sacrificial love will transform even the most ugly, the most undesirable parts of who we are into something beautiful. We all crave somebody to love us, even our most ugly or despicable parts, to love us unconditionally in spite of our ugliness. We all want someone to come along whose love is so strong that it will transform all of us, even the ugly, broken parts, into something more beautiful and more desirable. And we all want that. We all desire that. But then in our heads, we're like, is that really possible or is that just made-up fantasy stuff? But wouldn't it be wonderful? If something, someone could take the most broken, despicable parts of me and accept them and through love change them and transform them into something beautiful, what if that could happen? What if that kind of transformation really could occur? Church, I'm here to tell you, that kind of love is possible. The love of Jesus does transform us from our most broken, most hideous, most ugly parts into something beautiful by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. Can you imagine anyone who have given that opportunity to say, we can take your most ugly parts and they can be transformed into something even desirable and beautiful? Who wouldn't want that? Well, guess what, church? We get that opportunity in the name of Jesus Christ to make that offer and say it's not just a story. It's not just fantasy. By the blood of Christ, it's real. Praise God for that opportunity. Let's take another story. How about something like Sleeping Beauty? What is Sleeping Beauty about? Well, none of us want to be doomed to think that we have to sleep in darkness forever. Surely there is someone out there who can break the spell of darkness and usher us into light. Surely there is a great prince out there who can rescue us from our slumber and our darkness and wake us up into new life. Well, guess what? 
There is one who can do that. Jesus breaks the spell of sin. Jesus wakes us up out of our darkness into light. Jesus moves us and transforms us. You see, these are stories that point to something beyond ourselves, but must be true. There is a love that breaks death. There is a light that shines in the darkness. There must be a way that lets us live forever. And there is a way, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that the reason we feel this way is that there is a cosmic reality on the other side of the wall of this world. And it's a story of Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. And it's more than a legend pointing to something wonderful. It is pointing to the great reality itself. Jesus, the great reality to which everything else ultimately points. And you know what that means? It means we don't just have to wish and hope for some kind of magical, transformative love, we can experience it. So that when we hear these Disney stories or any stories and we're drawn into them, we think to ourselves, oh, that's such a great story. If only there was a prince to come to me. If only there was somebody that would love me and my ugliness. If only there was somebody that could whisk me out of the darkness that I'm in. If only I could be saved in that way. Church, you can. You can. And his name is Jesus. Jesus comes to us and he says, don't you see? I am the story, the great reality to which all else points. Don't you see? I am the ultimate story. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one else comes to the Father except through me. So that every single one of us and anyone that we know can be swept up into the great grand love and grace and beauty of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when we see it and understand it, we are moved and then we are transformed. Spells in our life will be broken. Spells will be broken because of the love and the blood of Christ in our lives. The spell of heroin can be broken once and for all in Jesus Christ. The spell of division can be shattered and broken once and for all in Jesus Christ. The spell of inequality can be rendered powerless in the blood of Jesus Christ. The spell of our own incessant selfishness and sin can be destroyed for Forever in Jesus Christ, and the spell of death can be overcome forever in Jesus Christ. In each one of those examples, how is the spell broken? How are freedom and life and grace and beauty offered under one name? The name of Jesus Christ. He is not one more wonderful legend pointing out there. He is the ultimate reality to which all other things point. And that's absolutely astounding when we stop and think about it. Jesus says, I am the one that all the rest of the Bible is about. It's all about me. And how do you know this type of transformation is true? How do we know that this is ultimate reality? The text tells us. But here's what's interesting. In its current Form, it's hard for us to catch this. The last thing I want us to hear this morning is this. If you go again to John chapter 1, go to verse 51, there's an interesting phrase there. It says, verily, verily, I tell you, or truly, truly, I tell you. The translation here makes it hard to catch what we're, what's really being shared. The word here really is the word for amen. It's an Aramaic word that means this is true. But here's the odd thing. Every commentator or historian who knew ancient cultures will tell you Jesus' use of it right here is absolutely unique. No one else in the Old Testament uses it this way. No one else in the New Testament dares to utter, verily, verily, I say unto you. As one commentator says it, Jesus Christ's use of amen to introduce his own words is without analogy in all of Judaism or among other New Testament writers. 
Amen was only used to affirm and approve the credit or the words of another. But here Jesus is using the words to speak about himself and his own words. For example, priests might be listening in the synagogue to another speaker or elder, and after that elder was finished, the other priest would stand up and say, Amen, of what that individual had just said. That was their way of saying, we have checked out what that person just said. We've checked it against the scriptures and our own understanding. We have found it to be true. So, Amen to them. And all the other people might say, Amen, of what that person had just said. But look what Jesus is doing here. He affirms his own words by saying amen. And look, he doesn't just say amen one time. He says, amen, amen. Or as some translations put it, verily, verily. Jesus offers a double portion. He's downright blatant about this, making sure we catch the powerful vision that he's sharing with Nathaniel. It's Jesus' way of saying, I will take away your right to decide if what I say is something you like or something I'm teaching you like or dislike. I take away your choice to choose to follow or not. You do not get to look at me and listen to me and say, well, that part makes sense. Do that. That part does not make sense. I won't do that. You don't get to do that. What Jesus does is he comes and he defines and he creates truth, not us. And he clarifies that by saying, amen, amen. These are my words. This is the way it is. Amen and amen. What that means is if we want to be a disciple of Jesus and follow Jesus personally, we must be willing to listen and follow God's words, whether we like it or not. It means we submit ourselves to God's word, not decide ourselves if we feel like following them or not. We decide to only give ourselves to God and God's truth and God's amen over our own. Church, Jesus is inviting us to see and move and come so that our lives might be transformed from death to life and old to new and dark to light. That's what our vision is about here transformation in Christ and changing lives inside and out. That, that's all it's about. I am so excited for our future. I'm so passionate about what I believe God is laying out before us as increasingly all we want to be about is Jesus. To peel away distractions and align ourselves completely and focus every decision and simplify and strategically design ourselves so that lives can see Jesus and be moved in Jesus and be transformed. So I'm going to ask you all, would you just be in prayer about that? Would you pray specifically for people to see Jesus and be moved in Jesus and transformed? We don't want to just teach it. We want it to be caught. We want to be such credible witnesses like John that even a world that does not know Jesus sees Jesus in us. That every person, and we're all like this, with our most ugly, despicable parts, can have those parts transformed in a love greater than what we can imagine. And any darkness that we might be wandering in can be evaporated and light shone in. Would you pray that with me as a people of God, as First Church, that that would be our reality, that we would see and move and be transformed. May it be so. Amen and amen. Verily I say unto you.